University of Virginia is implicated in slavery from its very founding. Jefferson was an incredible visionary and positioned the emergence of the new nation really at the forefront of, uh, of Western history. When in Paris, Jefferson was writing about Virginia, something that would eventually become published as Notes on the State of Virginia, his only published volume, uh, he would actually, um, he would decry slavery because slavery amplified the boisterous passions of men, right? And of course, he's a man of reason. So he is not interested in anything that inflames the passions. He also described slavery as despotic. It had a, uh, the impact of despotism on those implicated, right? So he's a very, very clear writer. When he's in Paris, <laughs> for a Parisian audience, he's a very, very clear writer on the profound impacts of slavery on the formation of a people. And so when he begins to build the University of Virginia, he is thinking about this particular conflict. How do I create an idealized landscape for the formation of the mind and the graduation of citizen leaders while simultaneously recognizing that it's going to be embedded in a landscape implicated by slavery, which has at its core despotism? He's not unaware <laughs> of, that, of that conflict. He doesn't write about it much when we're talking about University of Virginia. And so I use the architecture and the landscape of the academical village as a way of understanding that particular tension. So when we're talking about slavery at the University of Virginia, it's important for us to talk about it in a couple different ways. Uh, the first is through the idealized lens of Thomas Jefferson. Our typical view of the academical village is from where the Homer statue now stands. Right? That's the early 19th century lithographic view, up the lawn with the rotunda at, at its pinnacle. And it's a really beautiful view. But what it does is it foregrounds, of course, the pavilions, right? the, the five pavilions on each side. What was the function of the pavilions? They were intended to be the residences. They were, in fact, the residences of the professors, right? Uh, and so they, they're designed in a very, uh, very, with a very clear intention. Each of the pavilions is a two-story building. It has on its upper story the apartment for the faculty member, and the classroom is on the, on the ground floor, right? Which means that the professor is going to descend the staircase into the classroom space, and the students are going to move horizontally into that classroom space. It becomes this nexus of two different social landscapes. Now, what's interesting, what people often fail to recognize, is that those upper story apartments have a walkway from apartment to apartment, Right? So the colonnade that fronts the students' rooms is actually a walkway on its roof so that this professor can walk on that roof to get to this professor's apartment. Right? And all five on this side are connected one to the next. Now that's intentional. And Jefferson actually refers to it as the West Street and the East Street. It's a street of one-story apartments that rests on top of the classrooms that were below. Right? So from the beginning, Jefferson is thinking about how do I create spaces where the professors can hang out together without having to interact with the rabble of the students. Right? Now, why would he do that? Where are the faculty from? The first faculty. They're from Berlin, Edinburgh. So these are very well-educated elites, intellectuals, from cosmopolitan centers. And where are they coming? 
<laughs> to a little no-name town in the middle of absolutely nowhere, right? Right? So these are very, very, they're, they're all white, but these are very, very different social groups because he knows that these students and these professors, there's a gulf. There's a huge cultural and intellectual gulf between these people. So he creates a safe space, essentially, for the faculty. And that's what the street is. Right? So he begins by building uh, Pavilion 7. So what is now Pavilion 7? And, okay, open your eyes. How is Pavilion 7 different from all of the other pavilions? It has arches, right? We call that an arcade. So the ground floor, there's an arcade on Pavilion 7. That's the first building. Uh, he builds that and goes, eh, nah. Don't like that idea. We're going to go with columns, right? And so what that helps us to remember is the fact that he is designing the academical village as it's being built, right? We often think of this UNESCO World Heritage Site as just sort of springing whole cloth from the mind of Jefferson. Absolutely not true, right? The design process is iterative. It changes dramatically. His initial plan was a big square, right? And that square was going to be as wide as it is long. Right? Now think about that as a social space. Like that's an enormous distance. And if that was actually a square, the lawn would be five times as big as it is. <laughs> right? So that has a profound impact on, on human interaction. It's also true that he's building the academical village, or designing the academical village, in the rolling hills of Albemarle County. This is not flat land. Right? And so that enormous huge square, he starts building, he's like, yeah, wow. That's not going to work, <laughs> right? Because that team of enslaved men who are shoveling all of this soil to try to create these flat terraces, it's going to be years <laughs> for us to actually provide all the fill. As you put the plans of the pavilions in chronological order, you can actually see Jefferson's mind um, becoming more sophisticated as he's quite trying to think through the problem of the social interaction between faculty and students, the capacity of the pavilion to accommodate faculty who are, by the way, actually going to have families, right? <laughs> and not just be, the, his initial vision is the, the single uh, sole uh, gen, you know, male genius, right? And that turns out not to be true. They have families and that gets complicated. And so uh, there's an increasing sophistication of the design of his pavilions when you put them out in chronological order. Cool? So uh, for this 10 years, 10-year period of construction, we have to recognize that this is a landscape dominated almost exclusively by men. There are going to be a few women here that are providing domestic services, but the construction landscape is one dominated by men. That's going to be white and black men, enslaved and free, all working uh, here together. Uh, the enslaved black men that are part of this landscape, we have no sense of the actual numbers because so many of their names are not captured, uh, but certainly 50 people are working on this site at any one point in time over the course of 10 years. So you're doing a ton of earth moving, uh, but you also have brick manufacturing going on. You have brick laying. They're building up the shells of the buildings. Uh, you have artisans who are coming in to provide the ornamental detail. Carpenters are doing roofing systems. Uh, framers are working on windows and doors. So this is a very, very complicated dynamic space. The Board of Visitors of the University of Virginia uh, actually commissioned different builders for different buildings. 
right? So there's individual contracts for all of these different buildings. It's much more like a kind of open competitive village. They're learning from one another. We know that Jefferson brings in Italian stone carvers. For those four uh, Carrara marble capitals, he doesn't trust a Virginian uh, artisan or Virginian stone uh, to accomplish that, so he brings them in from Italy, right? So this is an incredibly dynamic, um, very interesting space. Lots, it's, uh, uh, lots of movement. Uh, and we, we suspect that most of those artisans are actually sleeping on the floors of Pavilion 7 as the rest of the pavilion, pavilions are going up because it's shelter and it's not yet uh, occupied. So this is the nation's largest building site. There are more people, materials moving through this place. That's really kind of cool. And when this place shuts down, I mean, when the construction shuts down and the university opens, this whole uh, community has been uh, developed over time, and they all disseminate to places like Stanton and Lexington. And what we've been able to do as we have been diving down into the records of the University of Virginia, we've been aggregating those records over the last uh, five years. They're all uh, now searchable on a new website. Jefferson's University, the Early Life, J-U-E-L, is an incredibly important repository for all of this data. And what we've done is we've been able to go in and just try to rehumanize a few moments of, uh, of um, the enslaved peoples that are here. And so I'm just going to briefly tell the story of Sam the Carpenter. Sam the Carpenter shows up in the records from, almost from the very beginning. We have him tied to the construction of lots of different things, but particularly the roofing system of a couple of the pavilions on this side. He's actually in charge of completing one of the most important carpentry tasks here at the Academical Village. Uh, and that is the completion of a massive roofing system. These are really significant um, uh, uh, construction tasks. So he has, as an enslaved black man, he has people that are reporting to him so that he can complete that, that particular task. Sam the Carpenter, in addition to these roofing systems for both hotel, for pavilions and for hotels, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, he is also completing uh, dairies, uh, a stable, uh, he's also uh, uh, producing a barn. And so he's doing all kinds of heavy carpentry around the academic village for the, for the full 10 years of construction. What's interesting about that is about halfway through that process, we see, emerging in the records, young Sam. And young Sam is almost always assigned to work with Sam the carpenter as, an, as a carpenter's apprentice. And so we have no way of knowing that young Sam is actually Sam the Carpenter's son, but one can only imagine that that's probably true, right? So young Sam shows up. He's probably in his mid to late teens, and he is working here. He is also enslaved, working with his enslaved father, learning tasks in and around a community of both whites and blacks, enslaved and free, and Sam the Carpenter recognizes that he needs to train his son to navigate a landscape in which he will probably never be free. We have no emotional access to that, and it's probably it is inappropriate for us to try to gain emotional access to what that would be like. But we must just pause and recognize how difficult must that have been to train up and equip your son, knowing that your son is always going to be working under the conditions that you yourself are subject. So it's totally appropriate for us to talk about Thomas Jefferson when we're talking about the, uh, the academical village, right, and the University of Virginia. Completely appropriate. But we also have to recover Sam the Carpenter and the other men like him and fold their stories and their narratives also into the telling of this place.